Hey everybody, welcome to this episode of the Charlie Kirk Show. With us today are two incredible men back based on popular demand, <laughs> Congressman Bob McEwen. Bob McEwen speaking. <laughs> Charlie, great to be with you. Great to be back. And my pastor, Rob McCoy. Hey, Charlie. A lot going on in the world, and I know there's some things you guys want to touch on. Last time we chatted was many months ago, and I have to say, Bob, you gave one of the best defenses of the founding of America and this kind of rejection of the lie of systemic racism. You did wonderfully. We were chatting over lunch about this idea of corporate wokeism. Let's start there and wherever it leads us. Well, let's, be go, fun. let's go back to what you just mentioned about the founding of America. The president of the United States, Donald Trump, uh, saw where there was an effort to say things that simply aren't true. When, when a person comes up to you and says something that's totally bizarre, we tend to just dismiss it. And so when these folks at New York Times came along and said, you know, America was founded under such circumstances and, and, and they give a date that's 150 years before George Washington was even born, our natural thought is just to, that's absurd and, and you move on. But as they were successful in the 1619 project to begin to teach that America was formed, uh, they literally used the word the United States. Of course, the United States didn't exist at, at all at that time. They began to teach the children. The president, Donald Trump, created a thing called the 1776 Commission. Why? Because America was born on July 4th, 1776. And I was uh, fortunate enough to be appointed as a commissioner to the 1776 Commission. When a president is sworn in, it's in the Constitution at noon on January 20th. And then uh, they have the parade, they have a luncheon, they have a parade, and then they have the inaugural ball. And then they go in the next day at 9 o'clock and get their picture taken as the first day of being president of the United States. Uh, Joe Biden could not wait until dinner at 5.30 in the afternoon, just five hours after being sworn in, he abolished the 1776 Commission. One of the most important things to be done was to go back to trying to convince people that America was born 150 years before it was actually born. And it's uh, very sad, but it gets back to what you What's what their motivation, saying. Bob? Why, why 1619? <clears throat> and is there any truth to this idea that we have colonial roots to the founding of America? No, um, um, people had talked and began to pray uh, as they began to read the, the scriptures. They began to, uh, after the uh, creation of the Geneva Bible, and they saw that God had made man, and it's not because of his bloodline or how much pro, uh, uh, tribe that he belonged to or how much land that he owned, but because God made them that he had individual rights. And that began to change things. You see an explosion thereafter in arts and culture and, and Bach and Beethoven and Mozart and Shakespeare, and you see all these things. Then, then there begin in 1776, you see also the the free enterprise system where no longer are you tied to a river or to land, but you through the quality of your mind, you can create a, a, a new product and a good service and wealth begins to explode. The, the nexus for all of that was the United States of America said, we hold these truths and, and nail them down that God gave individual those rights. Everything before that is virtually the same. And, and when it came to slavery, where people were just part of a group and you could, you could uh, control people, that, that slavery was prior to 1776 universal or ubiquitous. After 1776, it, it was anathema. And that group of men that signed that document are the ones that changed the world for all time and people still bristle at that. So what how should we treat colonial history then? This is something that some, I think, uh, well-meaning conservatives ask. They say, if the 1619 Project is flawed, 
then should we forget Roger Williams and George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards? And those were people that came to, to, to start, that came for religious freedom. Uh, back under, under the old colonial system, when, when those people landed, uh, there, there were Africans that, that captured other Africans and sold them into slavery. In the 1619 project, it was a, a, a black African that sold to a black African purchaser. That was the first transaction in 1619. And of course, it had nothing to, to do with America, but Roger Williams and these other folks came to America for independence, uh, with the Mayflower Compact. Religious they, freedom. They, they, they came for religious freedom to become what God had made them to be. And of course, each one of the states was founded on, on that that principle. They had to collectively uh, join together, for, often over slavery, that every time they tried to get rid of slavery prior to America being born, the king had the, the power to veto it. And that was one of the real motivating factors to put a stop to it. Uh, and many of the founders started Bible societies uh, that they were committed to the scriptures Though they were all born in a slave culture, they were committed to removing slavery from the face of the earth. And every state north of Maryland abolished slavery by the time of the founding. Yep. Nine states. By, by the ratification of the Constitution, uh, 1787. I guess my question is that if we say that America's founding was absolutely on July 4th, how do we deal with the decades that led up to it? And that's a question that the 1619 people are able to get into schools because they say there was all of this complicated colonial history that kids aren't being learned by being taught. Mm -hmm. Is there any truth to that? Mm -hmm. No. Uh, matter of fact, a, a good uh, guest to have on your program would be Bill Federer. Uh, as you go through even how the with the Mayflower Compact and how they were blown off course and where they landed outside the king's jurisdiction, they had to establish their own self-rule. So this was the first political compact, the Mayflower No, no I know, but, but that, that's what they want to teach. Oh, okay. So the point is that if we started in 1776, then should we talk about colonial times? That's the argument of the New York Times, right? Yeah. Well, Spain controlled Florida, and I, I suppose that's, that's all part of, part of history. But there was a momentous time, that an explosion that took place. No, I know, but the 1619 Project wants us to talk about that. Yeah. I, I have I have no problem. So what's our about problem with the 1619 project? But they want to say that that's what America was born. And, and, Why not? Well, how wasn't it though? It was, I'm playing devil's advocate yeah, because, yeah, because this is school board people don't know how to respond to that. Yeah, these, these that's when when people came here. But as as they studied the Word of God, they studied what rights were were correct and where rights came from. That's where they banded together and said we're going to start a, a new day. So what happened before that? And of course, the, the irony of the whole thing is the 1619 project says that slavery is so wonderful. Now remember, their their people were dedicated to it, fought a war to preserve it, and all. They said that slavery was so wonderful that because there was slavery a hundred years before America was born, that's why this nation, four percent of the population of the world, creates nearly a third of all the goods and services. That slavery is what shot it to the moon. You're well, exactly. The right. absurdity of that is just difficult to it, grasp. It is a pro-slavery economic argument. I just think we have to also be very clear that there was a colonial tradition Absolutely. that actually did not totally embrace slavery the way that the, some of the historians said. It was a much more mixed I see what cultural saying. landscape, right? Yeah. Because some of the 1619 push, the way they get it into these schools is they prey on the misunderstanding of colonial history. They say, hey, we need to teach people about the 1680s, 90s, and early 1700s. I don't think we should be afraid of that. No. And I, I just think the, the biggest problem with the 1619 Project, they don't use original source documents. Nope. They misunderstand the founders. And the biggest issue is not the year 1619. They, their big argument, and I've read all their garbage, is they say that 1776 was about a defense of slavery. That's their big argument. It's not about the idea of going back to 1619, right? Which I actually, I'm, I'm cool with talking about the Mayflower Compact. I'm, talk, I'm cool about talking about 
you know, I think it's like 170-something families, whatever it is, you would know the number, where they kind of just say, hey, we're in the middle of the Atlantic and we have to figure out how to govern ourselves if we survive this thing. The problem I have is all of a sudden they're indicting the American founding and they're saying, no, 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 no. They're harboring the same evil that happened in 1619. I just want to make that clear yeah. that we can't throw out colonial no, history. No, I the, think it's a big part of who we are. The clarity, good, of, the clarity of colonial history, if done correctly, not with revisionism like they do, totally. would completely support the founding of this nation for the purpose of freedom. Who was that one guy you mentioned that you did a deep study on? It was either it was John Adams' pastor or something? Oh, uh, Jonathan Mayhew. Yes, mm -hmm. tell, tell us about him. Well, so Jonathan Mayhew, uh, he actually died in 1766. Um, and when confronting, especially the king who was facilitating slavery in the colonies, even though the colonists didn't want that, it, it was the pastoral class that, that started to instruct and educate the founders. And so Jonathan Mayhew, uh, folks said, you, this is sedition. You can't, you, you, you can't go against the king. And they would, they would cite Romans 13. And so Jonathan Mayhew did a sermon on Romans 13, an exegetical work where it says that God appoints all positions of authority and they're there for our good and we're to submit to them. And Jonathan Mayhew pointed out that if that authority isn't doing good, they're no longer the authority. It's not unlimited submission. And he coined the term disobedience to, ty disobedience to tyrants is obedience to God. John Adams said that that sermon and that minister was the inspiration for the War of Independence. And he died in 1766. Yeah, 1766, before we had a constitutional republic totally. that now declares the authority in America as we the people. And so when you look at Romans 13, where God appoints all positions of authority, in a constitutional republic, that authority is the people, and, and those who govern, govern by our consent, and they're bound by the seven articles of the Constitution. And if they fail to obey the oath of office, our birth certificate says it's our right and our duty to remove them. Yes. And and the this the Nicole Hannah Jones types, the sixteen nineteen project people, they totally whitewash history throughout the thirties, forties, and fifties and the seventeen hundreds of this idea of how big of a deal it is to recognize that slavery is wrong. From our 2021 eyes, that's a hard thing for us to process. But the fact we made any movement on the topic was something that mankind had never seen before. That this was an, that was an evil that we have to stop it, regardless of any sort of economic stimulus it has. Which I'm with you. I think I think slavery. Thomas Jefferson wrote ex extensively about not necessarily that slavery was wrong for the slave. He wrote about that. You know who he said slavery was wrong for? The slave owner. He said it it creates lazy, selfish evil and despotic tyrants he wrote extensively about it and that's true i think slavery is bad for everyone exactly and mm -hmm. it, this this whole idea of the moment the 1776 i think was the moment but the build-up was this multi-decades of beautiful rich sermons and courageous truth tellers that culminated in that summer of 1776 if you if you look at history and give it an honest assessment and you see the protestant reformation and you see as is Bob pointed out uh, the the Geneva Bible where tell us about the significance of that. So the Geneva Bible was put together, and it, it was no different than the King James Bible. They they still use the original manuscripts. The only difference is in the Geneva Bible, uh, on on the uh, on the side of each page, were were notes, and each of these notes had commentary on civil government. And, and they, they did extensive work on self-governance. Wow. And they listed that. 
And so when you see in that pa painting in the, in the uh, Capitol Rotunda where they're holding out a Bible, it's the Geneva Bible. This is what inspired them is for self-government. Is that from Geneva, Switzerland? So or? Was, yeah, yes. I'm just I'm when, curious. When yeah. Bloody Mary came in and she began to reimpose on the church. Who in, was Bloody Mary? In Scotland. She, was, she took over after Elizabeth okay. and began to impose what year was this? the church of, uh, well, it'd be late 1500s, early, okay. early 1600s. And, and, uh, and, and she wanted to take over the church. And so the, when you rebel, as Rob said, when you rebel against the church, that's called, that's called uh, sedition. Yeah, or tre heresy. Tre treason. Yeah, treason. And so they, they kill you to death. And so, so, they, so these Knox and, and Calvin and all these people left and went down to Geneva. They left Scotland. And while they're sitting around the Starbucks in Geneva with nothing to do, uh, now this is where you understand divine intervention. They said, why don't we take the scriptures and put them into modern English? And translate them. And they said, "Well, good. Let's do that." So they started doing it. And Calvin said, "Why don't we number the verses?" So prior to that, there was no John three sixteen wow. until they they did it. Now you, it was just all the it, way it was. It was just manuscripts. And and so when when they got this Bible together, and then it, it, as Rabbi Lappin points out, is better than anyone is you can follow where that Bible goes. And that's where you see this, again, explosion in invention and creation and mm. art and literature and all these kinds of things. Then it gets up to poor James. He's, he's uh, jealous because the people recognize we don't have to go to some city on the Caribbean to what we do. We go directly to God. And so that created a reformation of we go directly to God. And James began to say, ooh, it's just a matter King of time. He, well, we're not going to have to go through the, the kings, the divine right of kings. The God ordered, they're going to see that too. And so he took the Geneva Bible and got the King James authorized version. So he got rid of the comments. Now, was that, that before he killed Tyndale or after? Um, <laughs> well, it, it would have been, it would have been right around uh, the same It would have been time. after because... Yeah. He killed yeah. Tyndale in like 1603 or something. Yeah. Well, he, he, and he wasn't there that long. But then th those people, then then they made a covenant that we have no king but Jesus. And that's where they... they and then you have Samuel Rutherford uh, wrote um, a pamphlet called Lex Rex, where the king was saying that he's the head of the church. And Samuel Rutherford said, no, when the king enters the church, he's subject to Christ like everyone else is. Christ is the head of the church. And, and that was revolutionary. That was the Scottish Covenanters. And, and that pamphlet, Lex Rex, was instrumental. And it was guys like John Knox and these folks that put together self-governance by looking at the scriptures. And the, the idea of a constitutional republic, it, it didn't start in, in, in Rome. It didn't start in Greece. It started in the wilderness with the Jews, uh, three to five million slaves. And the Republic was when Jethro said to Moses, appoint godly men who are not covetous, who love the law over thousands, hundreds, fifties, tens. So you have representative government. And then the constitution, this immovable structure that would guide them, this moral law was the Decalogue, the 10 commandments. And from that came the civil law. And, and they, they lived together for 40 years without a police force or a standing army because they were accountable to God and accountable to each other. And so the founders sought to put something like this together, as did these Scottish Covenanters. It was a, it was it was brilliant, and and you follow that back, and you do an honest assessment of history, you'll see that they're contending with colonialism. They're contending with all these issues. So Bob, the, and I, I hope you don't mind us diving into this. I think it's fun. The kids are taught founders love slavery. They embraced it, or they were quietly, passively supportive of it, at the very least, because of the Three-Fifths Clause and the Fugitive Slave Act. 
Why is there more to the story there? <laughs> Three-fifths. <clears throat> because those that didn't want slavery, and, and just say during that same time is when they were putting the, the Constitution together in 1787, and they were operating under, under the, the uh, uh, Articles of Confederation. The, the Congress and the Articles of Confederation hadn't paid the soldiers, and so they created this Northwest Territory, Illinois, Ohio, Wisconsin. But they said that when we give these soldiers, we don't have any money for them, so we're going to give them land grants. But in that Northwest Territory, there can be no slavery. It article 6. Unanimously. That's Article 6. So everybody's thinking there, okay, this is going to be a dilemma. And so how are we going to work our, our way through this? Because there are people who said, we cannot have this as slavery. And, and, and so the South said, well, we, we want some of those that wanted to preserve slavery. We want to be able to count our slaves as people. And he said, well, that's fine. That's wonderful. Good. We'll call them citizens and they'll be allowed to vote. Well, no, we're not sure about that. And he said, well, and so they didn't, the South didn't want to give them any recognition at all. And the North said, well, we want to give them 100% recognition. We want to be counted as 100% and they can vote. And so the compromise was in the medium was that they wouldn't be able to vote and that they would get, be counted as three-fifths for a while. Now, here's, here's the point. The question was not whether or not there would be slavery in the United States, in, in the South. The question was whether there will be a United States of America. That was the question. And so the effort that they had to make these compromises to get over the hump to do something that nobody ever done in all of history. And these marvelous, marvelous compromises were made so that this great nation could then lead the world to freedom. Well, and also just to add, the South did not want blacks or slaves to be able to vote. They wanted them for a head count right. so that they for could boost their population the that white men could vote with a, a heavier representation bucket so that they could dominate the country. Correct. They so never actually wanted blacks to vote. No. That's correct. They were afraid of that. They wanted zero. And, and the, the North wanted 100%. And that's where they compromised at three-fifths as they'll be counting towards so that the South cannot overwhelm the Congress by always having and, well, and being able to just bring more people. Well, the South will. wanted the count. They didn't want the vote, meaning they wanted the census to count them, but they wanted them not to be disenfranchised. Because in That's the lower right. house, they wanted a greater That's representation right. in the House of Representatives. That's right. Based so that they could make slavery permanent. They could make slavery permanent. And so the three-fifths was an effort to, to make it ultimately so that they got to 100%, which they ultimately did. Now, now, now keep in mind, the, the reason why there was a compromise is in 1787 you're contending with the threat of great britain the uh, the superpower on the face of the earth that had just defeated the second greatest superpower france an eminent war where they're not going to settle with this upstart nation and and they've got to come together and so they have to figure out how do we how do we unify in order to face a greater threat otherwise th there won't be a discussion there won't be freedom and so it was a three-fifths compromise. And what's, what's always marvelous, Charlie, is when people say, you know, when, when in the Constitution, people like me were only counted as three-fifths. Well, p where were you counted as 100% or where did you vote? Well, when the Constitution was passed, women couldn't vote. Where, where could women vote? The answer is no place ever. So this is the beginning as we begin to move out of the harbor to get to the place where we are now is they're criticized because we, did, we didn't jump that far. But they were the ones, the people that still think that way, that still think in the ways of race. They're the ones that never want to move down this path at all. They're, they're the party of slavery. They're the party of slavery. They're the party of the KKK. They're the, the party of Jim Crow. They're the party That's that right. says, as, as mayor of Chicago, I will not talk to white people. I will not take questions from, from white reporters. They're the ones that, that, that are constantly trying to establish the race. God is so disinterested in all of that. God looks at the heart. That's what America always stood for, was for the character. And the opposition to America are people who want to talk to you about skin color and not about character. And the fracturing really began and was something that 
we were actually on the path to abolishing slavery naturally. It had its own downward trajectory. Uh, Vermont did it in 1777, naturally nine states, as I mentioned, by the ratification of the Constitution. First ever anti-slavery con convention was in 1775 in Philadelphia, overseen by Benjamin Franklin. There was all this movement and Bill of Rights were a timeless eternal document. And then a man came up with a mixture of a new type of cotton, cotton gin, and an insidious ideology. Eli Whitney, yeah. Well, his name is John C. Calhoun, who was- Well, no, what well, Eli Whitney with yeah, the cotton gin. that's right. But John C. Calhoun was where everything changed. He's got, uh, Bob, t t do the, the, that insight you have on John C. Calhoun and how Jackson just- well, He was the vice president for yeah. both Jackson and Quincy Adams, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, maybe- That's correct. Yeah, Both uh, of them. But, but the, the main thing about all of that, I think that needs to be made, is that no one had ever done any of this before. Yeah. So the idea of criticizing America because it's only halfway to first base, everybody else is back in, in you the You know, dugout. it's like saying, it's like, you know, those Wright brothers, that plane couldn't fly yeah, coast to coast. Isn't that awful? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it, it, it's a great line. It never went as high as the trees. <laughs> My goodness. Yeah. How dare they? That's perfect. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. People who couldn't make a paper airplane would, would, are criticizing. And these people going around here who have produced absolutely nothing are criticizing these marvelous people who sacrificed their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to have, as I said, 4% of the population of the world creates a third of the world's goods and services. Uh, since our founders had instilled in the documents themselves the abolition of slavery, how is it that Andrew Jackson and John C. Calhoun revived this nefarious and, and evil industry? Um, well, what, what was the what were the shenanigans? Well, it, it was quarantine. First of all, you you couldn't bring any more in under the Constitution. So it's going to die out on itself. 1807. Thomas Jefferson signed the moratorium. In, in March of 1807, it could not take effect until January 1st. But brother, they wanted it done. They wanted to know the first moment that it could be done in America. Slavery, uh, importation of slaves. So the first nation to abolish the slave trade. So now it's going to atrophy and go away. But then they they came in with a compromise and uh, the great compromiser, which is known as and and. It, that is to bring in a new slave state and begin to expand it. And the purpose of that was so that you would have senators and, and you would be able to, to preserve this horrible institution. The big fight was in 1824. Uh, John Quincy Adams won that. And, uh, and But then the folks from west of the Mississippi, west of the Alleghenies, they were fighting for the chance. And the Democrat, the modern Democrat Party under, the, under Andrew Jackson, uh, began the, the march to a genuine slave trader, not of any of the founders up until that time. Uh, Washington, Adams, uh, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, and John Quincy Adams, they were all anti-slavery. John Quincy Adams, or perhaps no one ever in the history of the United States has been more, history of the world, that was more anti-slavery than John Quincy Adams. He went Quincy back Adams. to Congress just for that crusade yep. after he lost Intr term. Introduced a bill every day to abolish slavery. And they, Congress established the Adams Rule. And the Adams Rule is you can only introduce a bill once. Once it's there, we got it. You don't need to do it tomorrow. We got, we'll just read the one from yesterday. And so he did it because he hated slavery. And when he collapsed on the floor, of the house and and uh, was carried off to, to a corner to ultimately die. Uh, his one of the pallbearers was a congressman from Illinois sitting two rows behind him, was Abraham Lincoln, who carried on his legacy to the point that finally it had to be abolished. But those people who are today look at skin color; those people still wanted to preserve it, but they lost. So if you read Calhoun, which I've done a lot, he was a brilliant guy. There's no doubt. I mean, he was a treacherous guy. Uh, was definitely a defender of slavery. Wasn't wrong about everything. He wrote a lot about the family, a lot about order, a lot about custom, but he believed he had a total philosophical difference than the founders. He thought liberty had to be earned. 
he thought that liberty was something that you were not born with. It's not a right. He says that you have to check a certain amount of boxes and therefore we have a skin color hierarchy and the blacks, because they're owned by us, means they can't get to liberty. And he wrote rather persuasively, you're not allowed to say this nowadays, but I say it just if you just look at it objectively for the time, where he then connected a somewhat persuasive argument for a group of people that was still wrestling with these ideas with the economic lust that slavery was able to show because of the cotton gin and the new form of cotton that came across. But John C. Calhoun was really the guy that caused the American Civil War more than anything else. He was the guy that just really, he led into a lot of, I think, the Southern entrenchment when it came to slavery. It was a decaying cause. It was yes. not something that, it was a fringe thing by yeah. the 1810s. Yeah. And then you have Jackson who kind of revived it, but the, the Cotton Gin and John C. Calhoun in particular, and Calhoun did not see eye to eye with his own president. John Quincy Adams on this. I mean, mm -hmm. they hated each other. On yes, it. that's correct. And that was the beginning of the fraction of the of the American Republic as we know it. That's why we love <clears throat> listening to you, Charlie. Because, oh, jeez. Uh, I, I didn't know all of that about John C. Calhoun, and you stimulate me, and I'm sure others that well, are Well, he was a historicist, to too. He was a historicist before that was even a term. Mm. And so the, Ameri the attention of the American experiment is this idea of historicism, which is rooted in Hegel, which is that we are all inevitably going towards some utopia, that everything has a thesis and a synthesis and a thesis, and that we're marching through this thing in time. Well, those of us that are Christians totally reject this. Yeah. Like, hold on a second. We're not going towards some sort of ultimate output here. And Tower of Babel. <laughs> no, it's it's a, we totally reject it. And Calhoun is. Ex I mean, I, I I say there are there are nine words that every school teacher should know. John C. Calhoun. Nathan Bedford Forrest and Nicole Hannah Jones, because they are all the same. <laughs> yep, exactly. John C. Calhoun was the founder of the skin color movement. Again, I want to make this clear: he was brilliant on some things. I think we throw out the baby with the bathwater on some of this stuff because some of it's actually really, really good. With that being said, I think he had an evil heart when it came to the ownership of other people. I just want to make that clear because there are some Calhoun defenders out there, and they they just trim around the edges. He was evil when it came to slavery. Nathan Bedford Forrest was the founder of the KKK. You know a lot about Nathan Bedford Forrest. Nathan Bedford Forrest screened the first ever movie in the White House of Woodrow Wilson, Birth of a Nation. It's the first ever movie shown, Democrat on Democrat. And then Nicole Hannah-Jones. Nicole Hannah-Jones is carrying that tradition forward. Only difference is that it's a different skin color that they think deserves to be punished and put into oblivion. The two of them wanted, wanted to preserve a, an old order, and the third one wants to do away with the entire nation. And that is the historicist part of it. She wants, she believes that everything before me has been a problem and we must keep on changing things for changing sake. Yeah. If only young people heard all this history, right? Well, it, it, Winston Churchill, of course, is... He's my uh, guy. Well, he was a special man. And a young, young fellow said to him one time, he said, how do I prepare for government I would, if I wanted to have a, a life of government service? And he said, study history, study history, study history. For in it, you will find all of the secrets of statecraft. That's right. If you look what's happening at the border at this very moment, if you look at what's happening to our currency, the pass, uh, printing more money uh, in the first four months of the Biden administration than we have for an entire budget for the entire country and ever in the history of the country, when you see what's going to happen to our dollar, when you see what's happening to the border, when you see what's happening, it, it's all there. It's all historic. It's not new. If you've studied history, you can see it happen. I, I, when I was studying history at uh, Fresno State, 
uh, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but I enjoyed the topic. It became my major. And one of the things that caused me to really uh, just attach myself to it was when I saw the word word, his story. And I see this redemptive thread, at least from my worldview, uh, of these things that occur. And so, Charlie, when you're bringing up our, our colonial history and, and, and we go all the way back to the Reformation, we go all the way back to, you know, e e e e even into the wilderness and, and further back, you, you see this redemptive hand of, of God trying to set man free. And then you see the sin nature of man trying to enslave him. And those are the two contending totally. forces. And, and for me, looking at history, I'm always looking at those things. G granted, as you point out, you, you don't throw everything out. There's, it's like eating a, a whole chicken. You eat the meat, spit out the bones. But there are, there, there are characters of history that we glean from that allow us to understand exactly what he wants to do and what we're to do in, going forward. And one of the most important things, I think, to learn is that the United States, in my study of history, never in the history of mankind, as a nation become the premier nation on earth, but what it didn't seek it. It knew what it had to do to get there, and it knew what it had to do to stay there. With the single exception of the United States of America after World War II, when the entire world was at its feet, it did not ask for leadership, didn't pursue it, and had it thrust upon it. And in my opinion, has and done it, it better than it conquered lands <clears throat> that it didn't keep. Never, never has, an, has a nation pledged blood and sacrifice and treasure for the benefit of another and never ask anything in return. In return. Well, enough with ground to bury dead. With the single exception of the United States of America. I was speaking to the parliament in, in, uh, in Seoul, Korea, and I was on the Veterans Affairs Committee, and by that World War II passing through, now there are lots of veterans from the, the Korean War. And I pointed out to them, in all of my encounters with them, of all the, the things that they bear in their body, lost over 50,000 dead, etc. I have never met a Korean veteran yet who has ever complained about or regretted his sacrifice for their freedom to make that nation that was third from the bottom in wealth to now the 10th richest nation on earth, only so that they could be free. That's, no other nation has ever done that other than America. And I just let me continue on for a moment, if I may. And that is America has become the standard for righteousness in the world. And so the reason that we send the, the fleets between Taiwan and China every year is for freedom of passage, because we want to guarantee that the world is free. Now, if, that, if there is no United States of America, if there is nobody to appeal, then when that tanker belongs to the British and the Straits of Hormuz is attacked by Iran, there's no place else to appeal. And so the, the chaos and collapse that would take place in all the areas of copyrights and inventions and communications and travel and all, all that would fall apart if America is not strong. So when we see what's happening to America at this moment from within, it's an effort to allow t power, not righteousness, but power to control the Pacific, to control the Straits of Hormuz, etc. When you look at a satellite picture at night of the Korean Peninsula, the north is completely dark and the south is lit up with industry. And, and here we have veterans that contended and, and obviously they had a peace agreement where they drew the, the line but you pointed out that most of the arable land, arable land, seventy-five percent of the arable land is in the north. Describe how how you have two separate governments and why one is decimated and the other is flourishing. Well, I majored in economics, and and they explained that the reason some countries are rich and some countries are poor is because some are more aggressive and some are, are uh, have natural resources and others have temperate climates, etc. And so I I appreciate 
East and West Germany, same heritage, culture, climate, language. One has socialism, and, and when the wall came down, 17 times higher standard of living than, than under communism. North and South Korea, same heritage, culture, climate, language. Uh, North Korea got socialism after World War, after the Korean War. South Korea got freedom. 25% of the arable land mountains and, and all the refugees and went from third to the bottom to 10 from the top. North Korea, same heritage, culture, climate, language, is now over the last decade 10% six million people, 10% of the population of North Korea in the last decade starved to death. And as you know, food, clothing, and shelter. The first thing you do is food, then clothing, then shelter, but they can't even feed themselves. They eat sticks and, and, and leaves to fill up their stomach. Socialism only fails every time. And, and the significance of people trying to say about race and that the rich and, and poor, it, it's freedom that creates the wealth. And, and it's, it's not, it's not the skin color or the slavery that took place 250 years ago or it had to take some poor little six-year-old boy and he's supposed to be responsible for something that happened to, it has none of that. That is evil. Yeah. And that's what happens when you abandon God. Then you, then you cannibalize each other and you go by tribe. And when you go by tribe, it's whoever the strongest tribe is. And I like to use the example of my, our daughter went to Rwanda, 80% of the people are Hutu, 20% are Tutsi, 80% voted to kill the 20%. That's what man does without God. The significance of America is that our rights don't come from the land, they don't come from our skin color, they don't come from our tribe, they come from the same God. You said Joe Biden was struggling to say that? He, he In the press conference, he was trying to explain about America uh, in his meeting with Putin, and he, he said that, that uh, uh, our rights didn't, uh, didn't come from, from uh, a power. It, it came from, and then he stumbled around, but he, he said we were born with them. He didn't say they came from God. That's almost natural rights, mm -hmm. I have to say. He's mm -hmm. almost getting back into lock. Calhoun disagreed. Calhoun thought that we are all creatures of the government in the state and your rights are administered to you based on whether or not you deserve them. Or not. Well, uh, Joe Biden just said today uh, that our rights don't come from the state. I don't know if he meant it or not, but I'll take it regardless if he says it. I don't know if he meant or, it. or even if he remembered it. Yeah, that'll be a question. <laughs> you mentioned chaos on the southern border. Yes. So, Rob, isn't it our moral obligation as Christians to let in every single person from Honduras? No. Why? I thought we we're supposed to love our neighbor. We do. Okay. Yeah. And, and open borders and unconditional love are not found in the Bible. Um, when you look at different verses in the scripture, and I, I have a couple of them here. Let me just see if I can. This is, this is one that is continually used by the woke church that says that we're to have open borders. It's the Christian thing to do. Uh, it's out of Leviticus 10. And if a stranger dwells with you in your land, you shall not mis, uh, mistreat him. The stranger who dwells among you shall be to you as one born among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And then there's other passages where you see, this, you see the word stranger used, Isaiah 1.7. Uh, your country is, des is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Strangers devour your land in your presence, and it is desolate as overthrown by strangers. And the idea is there's two words. There's, uh, there's, there's uh, I think it's um, zur and ger. And these two words are totally different when, when interpreting in the Hebrew as what stranger is. 
Everywhere in the scriptures, when you look at the original language, the word stranger is somebody who is willing to assimilate or abide by the laws of the land. Um, in relation to uh, Isaiah 1-7, it's zer, excuse me, it's, it's zer. That word means someone who is an enemy, who comes and has no agreement with your compact, with your constitution, with what you have agreed defines you as a nation. And then people say, well, there's no boundaries. The book of Acts points out that God made us all of one blood. There, there's one race, the human race, but he appointed boundaries. And, there, and, and so there's, there's different countries and boundaries and ethnicities, but there is one race. And so boundaries are borders, compacts, constitution, ideology, contending for freedom. So you wouldn't have an open border any more than you would have an open door at your house. You control who comes in and, and what happens in your home as you would what happens in your city, your county, your state, and your nation. And then in addition, an open border is the unchristian thing to do because it's enticement. It, I, I will get arrested or, or I will be fined or prosecuted if I leave my back gate open and the three-year-old neighbor next door wanders in and drowns in, in let's say I, I have a pool. I, I would be held liable for that because I entice them. Well, with that enticement, we have sex trafficking, human trafficking, drugs, and, and there is no controls. And we're thrusting that onto a population that we're supposed to, based on Romans 13, we're supposed to protect. So, no, it's not the Christian thing to do. It's the exact opposite. If I may say that in order to have wealth, if we care about the condition of people, there has to be ordered liberty. And if there's disorder, then there can be no liberty, there can therefore be no wealth. And as Rob just said, when you leave your house for two weeks, you lock it. Why? Not to keep out your neighbors. Chances are your neighbors have a key to it. You don't, you, you don't mind them or your family. You, the, who do you want not one in your house? You don't want the drug addict coming in there building a bonfire in, in, in your living room. Now, that's why you lock your house when you go off and leave it. It's the same way with a border. You have a border there to allow people in that you want to come in. But as, as uh, I, I just spent two days on the border, Liz and I spent two days on the border last week in talking to the Border Patrol, and uh, they had over 200 meetings during the transition of the Biden election to the Biden being sworn in. And, and over 200 of these meetings explained, this is what will happen if you do this, this is what will happen if you do that. And so they, they took notes in order to do those things immediately. So there's lights along the border. They turned out the lights on January 21st. They haven't been turned on since. Uh, they, they said, they told the, the ICE, the Immigration uh, and, and uh, uh, custom enforcement, they told them you cannot arrest anyone. Well, once you can't arrest them, that's, that's just like when de Blasio uh, becomes mayor of, of uh, New York and says you cannot arrest a person for defecating on the sidewalk. And so they, they urinate on tourists when they come because they know that it's, it's a, a, they're not going to be fined for it. The same way for jumping the turnstile. So they gave the orders and it went out in Facebook that these, these folks could, these child traffickers and these human traffickers and these drug dealers that they could form these groups through Facebook. They would come and they would come across. And as they bring these people across the, the border patrol agents, we got pictures of them talking to, to the smugglers. They're standing there in the water talking to them as they're bringing them across. And they go back and get another group and do it again. Uh, that this one, this one uh, opening there, they have, have uh, processed. They don't arrest them. They process them and they give them papers. 
and uh, they've processed more people in the last 90 days than, than they, they did in the previous year. But they said they only do it for one out of three, that two out of three, uh, two others out of the three are just disappearing. But those that have the sheet of paper, they go to the airport, they don't have an ID, they don't have a COVID test, and they put them on the airplane or the bus and they send them to the red states all over America, hundreds of thousands a week. Uh, city of, D of Dayton, Ohio, every five days, just from those locations. So it's an effort to, um, and here's another thing, that if someone does show up and, and uh, they're, they, they're having a, a struggle, what they'll take is a child and throw them in the water or, or a woman and throw her in the water and she'll start to drown, knowing that the Americans will go rescue them so as the drugs can then get, get uh, on through. So it's, it's, it's beyond, beyond evil. It's what happens when you have a disordered liberty and you, you, our country is, is vulnerable. Along those lines, one of the reasons why I added that open borders and unconditional love are not in the scriptures is every, we hear this term, uh, unconditional love, it means without condition. God's love has conditions. For God so loved the world, the condition was he had to give his son. There had, there, there, if, if he's going to be just, the wages of sin is death, so he gave his son, and, and that had to be the propitiation, that had to pay the penalty. So that came with a condition, and then the condition for the receiver, he gave. A gift must be received and believed. And my point is this, love is not just, hey, do as you please. The Lord chastens those he loves. If you raise children in that capacity, it's a mess. Right. You, you, right. you, you're not a parent, you're not setting guardrails for their life. And so it's critical that as a nation, these rules are adhered to because it's for the betterment of those who have agreed, paid their taxes, and by consent, allowing these folks to govern who have sworn to defend their sovereignty. And, and they are, and they're not protecting those borders. These people are coming from over a hundred countries. The yeah. Chinese, Chinese are strongly involved, but, but lots of Venezuelans. Though Venezuelans tend to be uh, wealthier, uh, the government is obviously financing them, and they're uh, males, primarily between ages 15 and 19, uh, which are army, so and they're, and they're infiltrating our country in mass. And there's there is no there's no moral um, obligation for us to open up our country to all people at all times, both legal and illegal immigration. In the history of America, we've had varying levels of immigration, and we are way out of whack right now. We, we are, it's, after you eat a big meal, you need time to digest it. And I mean it both on the legal and the illegal side. And this idea that all immigration at all times is always going to benefit oh. all people always is oh. an absolute lie. And, you know, I, I talked to some people, they're like, well, we got to bring people in. No, why? Exactly. Hold on a second. Let, exactly. Let's, what if what if I told you that it's deteriorating the wage conditions of your fellow countrymen? Yes. What if we are not even able to service that person, let alone the fellow communities we already have? Now, if it's all about cheap votes and cheap labor, then that's a different conversation. I, I'm all for allowing certain people to come into the country under certain conditions. Who want to become Americans. That's right. Well, and, 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 I, and I would say one of the beautiful things about America with the regard of refugee, and, and I'm talking legitimate refugee, where they're their their nation is at war or they're they're persecuted people and they come as as the jews did seeking asylum seeking asylum willing to assimilate and adhere That's to it. to our our constitution yeah. our our arms are open we're we're happy to have them but to to support business and and you know get a bigger bottom line for corporate america uh, at the expense of the citizenry, I, sorry, I'm just I'll give I'm you not a buying it. I'll give you a great example. Elon Omar. 
Elon Omar was a refugee, and she's never said a good thing about America. Never said something. And she's a member of Congress. She hates America. And that's what we're talking about. She she should be on her hands and knees saying, you know, that would I, be a zur in the scriptures. Right. She <laughs> might say, you know, I might be a super communist or whatever, but thank goodness this country took me in. Yeah. Instead, she compares mm -hmm. us with Hamas. You think Hamas took in Elon Omar and Mogadishu when it was burning? They were offended. You saw that. Hamas was offended. Ha 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 that how dare they be compared? Hamas to Hamas criticized her for being compared to a Jew or to a, a, That's right. a, a free American. That's a good example, um, though, of an immigrant type, of exactly. ungrateful, and not willing to assimilate. And the argument that just drives me up the wall is that is when Camilla Harris and all of these people say they're coming from these terrible countries. Why are those countries terrible? Socialism creates poverty. In downtown Cleveland, downtown Detroit, in South LA, socialism, creates, yeah. socialism creates poverty. And so they're trying to escape socialism. I got it. Now, why do you want to do that to our entire country? And you just want to ask the question every time they say they came from, they're trying to escape for a better, uh, a better future. Of course, what is their better future? Their better future is freedom and free enterprise. So don't be trying to, you want to sell their economic system here. And you, and you can't have it both ways. You shouldn't have it both ways. If we had a press that would ask the question, they wouldn't. So socialism is a massive threat. In addition, though, there might be one even more immediate that you and I chatted about at lunch, corporate tyranny and corporate wokeism, where the same sort of authoritarian impulse can be exercised by some private corporation that we never elected for. There's no check and balance. So the American system has a couple attributes. You know this, you know this, but just to say for our audience again, independent judiciary, consent to the governed, checks and balances, spread over space and time, intentionally deliberate, you know, unquestionable eternal truths, you know, delivered from by God. Corporations seem to be kind of immune to that checklist, mostly. What is the check and balance against Coca-Cola? What's the independent judiciary against Google? What is the consent to the governed? How are we, people that respect private property, that love entrepreneurship, that love free enterprise, how are we supposed to deal with these companies that don't share our values, act like Democrat super PACs, and seem more and more hostile towards the very ideas that we've been talking about? Well, it's, that is the dilemma that we face immediately. And, and, and just to elaborate, as you said, it, you couldn't pass a law to say, on your corporate board, you must have three people of this skin color and then three people of that skin color. And you must have two people that engage in this sexual activity. If you tried to pass those laws to do that, and yet we have BlackRock and we have Morgan Stanley, and we That's have these right. people are saying, unless you have so many people who engage in this sexual activity on your board, we will not loan you. That is exactly right. And, and that, that's, the, that's where we need to be. Everyone needs to be involved. Everyone needs to be aware, and we need to vote. Uh, the evangelical, the people that are, are coaching Little League and teaching Sunday school are not voting in the proportions that they should. And our responsibility is that this country, this lighthouse for the gospel, this hope for the world is, is hanging by a thread. And if, if it can be, and there are those that, who are deliberately striving to steal it out from under us in, in order to change the we talked to the people at the border. I said, all right, where are all these? He said, we have to process these through over the next couple of hours because we're going to get another 2,000 coming on top, of, on top of them. Or where are you sending them? And every state that they mentioned where they were sending them were all red states. Demographic displacement. And so, but, but Bob, what are we voting for? Because it seems like the Republicans are okay with these companies doing this. Some of them. Well, it, political parties and politicians are a representation of the electorate. And and uh, you, 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 they they are the phrase will come to me in a moment. When I think, think about it, is that they are representations of, of the people that that are electing them, and it's essential for us to make those demands. They they will respond to what we tell them to do, and we need to be aware of how our 
how our rights are being stolen, they need to they need to help us put a stop to it. I, I would also say too that, as Abraham Lincoln said, uh, what's what's taught in the classroom and in this generation will guide the nation in the next. Uh, that's a paraphrase, but we've watched as our educational system has created these CEOs. And the conservative mindset is, oh, you know, they've got this socialist uh, teacher in their college, but once that kid gets out, he'll realize once he gets a job. Um, and, and if and if you're not a liberal when you're young, you're heartless. If you're not a conservative when you're older, you're you know, you're brainless. But but the truth <clears throat> is, uh, and that was the conservative position looking at these kids who are being educated. Well, they graduated, and now. They're CEOs of Coca-Cola, and and they're in the NFL, and the NBA, and the MLB, and and they're in the halls of Congress, and 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 they they've been educated this way, and they're implementing that. So it, it's it's a long game here, Charlie. There needs to be a, a complete re-educating of of our children, and and returning it to the parents, where we don't entrust them to, especially in California, the CTA, the California Teachers Association. It it. It has no interest in educating our children, right. but indoctrinating them. That's correct. So we, we really have to wake up, and we need to be at those school board meetings. We must attend them. This is a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. We should be contending for the lives of these kids. Yes. And every church in America should have their congregants contending. This isn't even partisan. I'm not asking you to be a part of a party. I'm asking you to contend for the welfare of your children in yes. your city. What is being put into their heads. I, I'm getting to the place where it comes to the corporations that if they're of a certain size or magnitude, they must be, the, 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 the Bill of Rights must then apply. And they've otherwise been able to skirt and say, we're a private company, we don't have That's to have freedom of discourse. It's a very provocative idea. It's not a perfect idea because then you're gonna be imposing a lot of different oversight. But I'm talking about a company like American Airlines. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about a company that American Airlines takes political statements, they are now doing political contributions. And I think to myself, hold on. I got delayed all the time from American. You guys got plenty of problems. God bless you guys for doing what you're doing. But we bailed you out last year. That's correct. We bailed you out because you said we can't survive without the money. And their, their stock price is going to be at a record high soon, right? Because that's the way this works. And then they have the audacity to come out alongside Delta Airlines and say that voter ID is not share our values because of the Georgia voting law, which was not even close to being enough that we don't share, that they don't share their values. And so at some point, it's either there has to be a place where there's rules for political engagement if you take certain types of money from federal government, like Amtrak. Amtrak, Amtrak can't speak out. They're, they're super inefficient. I'm not suggesting that anytime soon. But there's rules that Amtrak can't just issue a press release saying that, you know, we're, we have a stance on the Georgia voting law. That's no good, one cares Charlie. about your Georgia voting law, That's good. Delta. And the point is that natural rights are worthy of being protected. And the threat to natural rights is happening through two different types of kind of, let's just say, groups. The first group is from our government. It is a leviathan. It's growing. It's creepy. But there is a check and balance against it. Right. We can sue our government. And in certain states, you're more free than not. The second is these private companies and conservatives who are just completely unaware or uninterested in even exploring the ideas of how to hold them accountable. I'm afraid we're going to live in a Russian-style corporate oligarchy, and that's a very scary set of circumstances where we're controlled by 10 companies and we really don't have the natural rights we once enjoyed because of the private companies. So, so it's, let me see. So if a company is big enough 
that if it fails, the nation is going to suffer. So the government bails them out. It, it, it seems like that would be a prime um, opportunity to implement totally what, what you say. Like, I mean, so, for example, the stimulus money should have been like, hey, if you take more than $100 million in this PPP. You're you know, bound by these. Yeah, you, you, you got a political neutrality thing. Congratulations, America. Yep. No more contributions and no more statements. You're going to fly airplanes. That's a pretty simple rule, right? You're basically a government taxpayer-funded entity anyway. You're an NGO at that point, right? <laughs> like, Very good. American Airlines is an NGO, and the, the tech companies are a separate argument. That's just a great example. Yep. Another one is Hyatt, right? So Hyatt took all this PPP money to go give J.B. Pritzker you know, an extra $2 billion, who's the governor of Illinois, and a total disaster. Hyatt is the most liberal hotel chain you can imagine. Penny Pritzker gets all of her money from there, who is the head of the Department of Commerce for Obama. Why does Hyatt get all the taxpayer-funded money when all the, no one was going to hotels? And then they could turn around and then fund all these Democrat candidates and tell us how racist we are. Yeah. Without the taxpayers, would you have survived, Hyatt? I don't know. Maybe not. And so it, it kind of begins this thought process of if you're going to take taxpayer-funded bailouts, there's got to be a political neutrality to it. I, I like it. I do too, especially at a certain scale. And there's other, there's other. The tech companies are a completely separate issue. They, they're, they're acting like tyrannical, authoritarian, third world governments. And I, I think that, I think platform access is a civil right. That, that's where that's I'm right. at. That's right. Tell the president of the United States that he can't say something. Who would have ever thought such, such a day would come? And they got away with it. Yeah. Their stock price went up. Yes. Their users went up. They still are. Yeah. And so this whole idea of nothing but competitive pressure has not yet played out. I'm a big Rumble fan, R-U-M-B-L-E.com. We put everything on Rumble, but we're dealing with a different type of a company. So Ford Motor Company was very unique. They, they created the assembly line. We know the story. Henry Ford, a mixed guy, somewhat of a racist, but super great entrepreneur. But Ford existed so that you could get from point A to point B better and quicker. He didn't make the car to addict you to the car. These tech companies, they exist to have you be addicted. Their whole, their whole business model is more screen time. Yep. Mm -hmm. It's a different type of thing. Mm -hmm. And then you're dealing with... You're the product. Precisely. They're selling you. Mm -hmm. Henry Ford was not selling you. He was selling you a car. Mm -hmm. And so now we're dealing with different... Market principles always apply. With that being said, the market principle of these tech companies is that if the market principles apply, then they're just going to get better at selling us. And that's a whole different, then all of a sudden they're using market principles to almost put us in some of an intellectual prison. I, I'm getting to a place where I think we have to rethink the way we handle these tech companies. And for politicians to say that, that they, the reason we gave them taxpayer money is because they're in a condition uh, through no fault of their own. Well, whose fault was it? It, it was your fault that's that right. you told them they couldn't run the restaurant, that they couldn't travel to a hotel. So you're the one. So in this effort to have this revolu this socialist revolution, you created the dilemma. And then you came in to fix it by taking other people's money and creating a national debt. And then totally. they own us. So it's uh, the whole thing's in, in the mirror. But uh, to get back to what Rob said about schools and things, we've seen this coming, Charlie. Uh, and and I believe it's now here, and people are waking up left and right. They're beginning to see it. Parents are beginning to see yeah. it. So people, and I, I put them on, on my comments all the time when we see some school board member or some school doing something terrible, I always put it at the top, this is what happens when people don't know who their school board members are. And for the first time ever, and I've been strongly concerned about this for the last couple of years, I see people getting involved in school board races because they hire the superintendent. It's not the teacher. They hire the superintendent 
<clears throat> the school board does it. Then they hire the superintendent who then hires the teacher. You and I hired the school board. So that teacher is there because of what you and I put on that school board. And when we now are getting involved in, in education, and as you said so well, it's, it's not that these kids are all socialists. They don't know squat about anything. They don't understand free enterprise. They don't understand that all wealth, all wealth is created in, in, in a free market. Socialism just redistributes what somebody else made. Socialism doesn't create anything. And, and that they don't know, but nobody has told them that. So now as people are beginning to become awakened, uh, I'm very optimistic that this is what, this is the day that we have hoped and prayed for for a long time. Yeah. The silver lining to the lockdown is that uh, there's there's been an exodus from the public school system in a larger way, never before. And parents beginning to see yeah. what their ch children were being horribly and, and taught. And realizing that they're good teachers and they can actually teach their kids. Empower them. Empower. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Educational revolution is underway. Yeah. Bring that's it on. the solution. What else are you working on, Rob? Uh, well, uh, mostly working with you, Charlie, on the uh, Turning Point Faith and uh, watching churches across America start to realize that we have a responsibility in the ecclesia or the ecclesia, the public square. And, and awakening to that, that liberty is not man's idea, it's God's idea. And every church that has joined us, Charlie, has experienced exponential growth. I mean, exponential growth. And as Vody Bachman pointed out, uh, this fault line in his book, the woke churches and those churches that are awakening to liberty and their responsibility to, to declare it and defend it, those churches are growing and the woke churches are not. And, and, and people are, are wanting leadership in, in these unprecedented times. And, and I, I'm grateful that Bob's here for this reason. And, and I love this about this man. In, in some of the most difficult circumstances that, I, that I've seen in this country in 56 years, this man is an optimist. He's an optimist because he can, he can see the 40,000 foot view and he never gives up. And this ideal and this dream of America um, has always inspired me. And, and, and to realize the, the combination of his faith and as we've, we've shared on, the, on this program, Aristotle, politics being the highest form of community, morality and sociability combining is the hope for this nation. Um, if, if you don't mind, Charlie, one of, one of the most inspiring stories um, especially on leadership. And that's what we're looking for right now in, in this vacuum that's been created by a president that, that can't put a sentence together. How overnight something can change. And you shared one time, uh, and I remember being a young boy, Jimmy Carter's president. My parents, I mean, double digit interest rates. Uh, they were struggling to make ends meet. My father was part of the military and he had decimated the military. You drive over the Coronado Bay Bridge and the Pacific fleet was in, in ruins. It just looked like a mothball fleet. And, and there wasn't a lot of hope in the country at that point. And you know, Carter comes on and wearing a sweater and tells everyone to turn the thermostats down. You were a congressman back then. Tell the story if you would. And it, cause it's so inspiring about uh, commuting from Energy. Ohio yep. to yep. DC. Charlie, you'll love this. Well, people have tried to destroy free enterprise, and and with 
uh, creative capacity, they keep going around it. So now they've begun to learn that one of the best ways to do it is to step on the oxygen hose. If you just shut it down so that they can't have electricity or heat or air conditioning. And so Jimmy came in and, and did that. He said, we need to learn to live with less, ride your sweater, ride your bicycle, wear your sweater. America's coming to an end next Tuesday a week. There isn't anybody, anything anybody can do about it. And he shut down all, all of the logging and, and all the drilling. And, and sure enough, there's a shortage of gasoline. And so people could only go on alternate days. And, and they could only get a certain amount of gasoline, so they didn't have. They could treat you like like you're on an airline nowadays. I mean, when Nurse Ratchet comes up and down the hall screaming at you for not having your mask on over your nose, it used to be that they were trying to treat you nicely. So, so if you had so much gasoline, you worked. For, you're only open for three, four, or five hours, and and uh, that's and when when Democrats or when liberals do this, when the left does this to something, they they never take responsibility. They say this is the way it is. Inflation is going to explode next year. And they're going to say, well, that's just, Biden didn't have anything to do with that. Well, he just, it's just the way that it was. So Jimmy did all of these things, just like Biden is doing now. And sure enough, interest rates went, went to 21%, inflation went to 18%, gas lines were short. And they said, that's what the future is. Ronald Reagan came along and said, nonsense. He said, there's nothing wrong with this country that proper leadership can't cure. And so he, uh, we had the election. Let me just say that also during that 1980, uh, because America was as mothballed, only one plane in three was airworthy, only one ship in three could sail. America was on the ropes. They, they had a conference of African unity, and now called the African Union. And the first conference, the speaker was the president of the Soviet Union, Leonid Brezhnev. And he said, this is 1980, looking to 1989, he said, because of what we, the Soviet Union, are doing, by the end of this decade, we, we will be able to work our will any place on the planet. The correlation of forces, economic, military, and political on the side of socialism and communism. Ronald Reagan comes in and says, nothing wrong with America. Forget this nonsense. And so he took all the regulations. Or first of all, we all got elected in November of 1980. And uh, between November and January, when we took office, Liz and I drove back and forth six times to Washington from southern Ohio. We knew there was not a single filling station open after 3 o'clock in the afternoon. If we didn't have a full tank of gas, we weren't going to make it home that, that night. And so Ronald Reagan comes in, he takes all those regulations, he opens up oil, lets you drill, do things, take all those regulations, throw them in the Potomac, kill the fish, free the country. And uh, Liz and I are driving home in, in for Easter, and she's asleep on the front seat. I live in a place called Hillsboro, Ohio, on a hill. And as you come up, there's three filling stations in one block off the center of town. And those filling stations were all closed by three or four in the afternoon for over a year under Jimmy Carter. We come at 11 o'clock at night. All three of those filling stations are open. And I wake her up. I say, Lizzie, look. I said, had we not won, that wouldn't have taken place. Well, we elected Donald Trump. Donald Trump said we don't need to send our money to people that hate us and tell us when we can have oil. We got enough here. Number one source of, of natural gas on the planet. We can, and, and with a matter of 18 months, America is energy independent. And so now we've elected folks that have gone back and now we're, we're dependent again. The leadership is what makes a difference. We don't need to be to fear the future. We just need to do the right thing. And uh, America can, can and will do it. Amen. I believe that. Hey guys, thanks for watching. For more information, head over to VintageMcCoy.com or follow us on Instagram at The Vintage McCoy. We'll see you there.